We're going to jump back into this story, this amazing story of this, this man who encounters the compassion of God, uh, and, and we're going to consider what, what we can learn from it. So if you'll stand with me together, we're going to jump in. I'll read it, and you can follow along with me, um, and uh, we'll, we'll hear these words together. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into the holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. And not only are you a God of multiple opportunities, but you pursue us. You don't leave us in our own destitution, but you call us out. You, you send forth your salvation. God, I pray that you would encourage us by your spirit and your word to turn to you today. God, whether we are here having never really considered what it might look like to follow God, I pray that you would turn hearts to you. Or for those of us who have come burdened with sin, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you. And for those who are in the depths of despair and difficulty, God, I pray that we would turn our hearts to you and experience the grace of your salvation. Holy Spirit, would you minister grace to this congregation? Would you minister grace to the hearts here who are in need of your grace. The hearts that are hurting, are in pain, are, are burdened, God, would you minister freedom, healing, repentance, and life. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys can be seated. So we're in this, this what seems like a pretty unique book of the Bible that, that if you grew up in the church, you, you had heard about it, really, you'd seen this picture or something like it, where you're like, okay, Jonah, that's about the, you know, the guy and the whale and uh, their, their vacation Bible school 
uh, stories and songs that we sing, but, but this is a real story that we believe really happened. I mean, Jesus talks about it and he references it and doesn't seem to reference it as mythology, but he seems to think that this is something that really happened. And, and last week we talked about how God called Jonah and said, Jonah, basically, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And these were the Assyrians. Nineveh was a city, a prominent city within Assyria. And the Assyrians had been oppressing the Israelites, the people of God, specifically the northern nation. And so Jonah has some, some prejudices against the Ninevites. In fact, he, he hated them. He, he went so far as to run away from God and his purposes to go, instead of go, going through the land northeast, he went and got on a ship to go to a place called Tarshish, which we know just was away from uh, the presence of God, as, as the writer puts it. And he, he's a unique prophet. We know from 2 Kings that, that Jonah was a prophet of God, but if you look at any of the other prophets of God, as they were given difficult messages to give to uh, God's people or to give to the nations around them, they, they never said no. They might equivocate or they might say, God, it's going to be hard. Moses said, you know, I think I have a stutter. I don't, I don't speak well. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. Others said, there are challenges. Uh, Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. But, but eventually, they all kind of came around to obeying God. Jonah is unique in his willingness to step out in disobedience. He's unique among the prophets, but I would say he's fairly common among us. I say that with love and being one of, the, one of the many who have stepped at times away from the purposes of God. And so we see that he runs and tries to run from the presence of God, and that is about as good as trying to run to California on a treadmill. Um, doesn't work uh, for a n- number of reasons. And so he gets on this, this ship, and God, it says, hurls a wind that creates a storm that stops him in his tracks. And we see this weird comparison between these pagan, uh, non-Israelite sailors who are praying, they're begging their gods, they're, they're trying to find a solution, they're trying to help one another, they're throwing cargo over the ship's, over the ship's uh, bow, and, and you've got Jonah who's just asleep. And so the, the, the sailors wake him up and they're like, who, go pray to your God. And eventually he does, and, and they, they figure out that, oh, no, this is, this is Jonah's fault. He has offended Yahweh. And so they, they try to figure out, what do we need to do? Jonah says, you've got to throw me over. And at no point does he repent. He is still walking in repentance. He is so self-righteously angry about this call to minister to this people because he knows that God is compassionate. And if he calls out for repentance, that repentance may fall. They may repent. And so he's willing to even, even die rather than go to Nineveh. And so they toss him over the ship. And at the end of that section, we see that the waves stop, the seas calm, and the men worship. It says that they, uh, in chapter 1, it says that the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So that's what's happening on the ship. Now, under the ship, something else is happening in, in this section. Jonah is sinking to his death. 
And, and you have to imagine, and, and we're going to look at some of that, but he is, he's going down, and it's, it's, it's not, this is not the sound at the Outer Banks, which I love, because you can go jet skiing on the sound, and you can make a turn and fall off, and you're like, oh no, I'm going to die, and then you just stand up, and the water's like right here, and you're good to go. It's gross. It's very silty. You don't know what you're putting your feet in, but it's not the depths of the ocean. But here, Jonah is sinking to his death. And he is experiencing the judgment and the discipline of God. So in this next section, we're going to see three things, I think. We're going to see, first, the fact that God will discipline his people. I love you. That is good news. Trust me. God will discipline his people. Secondly, we're going to see that when God disciplines us, and and ideally before he disciplines us, we must repent by turning to him. If you've never come to church or you're not really sure what that means, the word repent means you stop going one way and you start going another way. First in your mind and the way you think, but then in your actions and behaviors, right? We all know what it's like to repent because we've all had our parents, most likely had our parents or an authority figure saying, stop that. And not repenting is you don't stop that and you end up getting spanked or you go to the principal's office or something else happens And stopping that is then you stop and you do something else. That is repentance. But it's more than just a physical act. It's it's a heart disposition. And we're going to see that when God disciplines his people, we must respond by turning to him. Then finally and ultimately, we'll see that God saves his people. God saves his people. This is good news. So verse 17 says this of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah... And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah had found himself in rebellion, on the run, underwater, and without hope. I'm going to say that again. Jonah found himself in this moment in rebellion against God, on the run, underwater, and without hope. And let me just pause and say that that's what sin will do for you. When I say the word sin, I'm talking about There are standards that God has given us in his word that many of them are even written on our hearts. We know the difference between right and wrong. And when we don't do those things or when we do things we ought not to do, that is sin. And the goal of sin, the goal of that that urge that we all have because of the fall is to bring us to a place where we're in rebellion, on the run, underwater, and without hope. That's what sin does. Sin will lie to you and say, you can get away with this. This one time doesn't matter. It's just a little thing. No one can see. For Jonah, the lie was that he could run from God's commandment in his life. Jonah was thinking, I can get away from the presence of God and from the demands that he has on my life. And you and I, we're not prophets who are are prophesying to a another nation, but God has demands on your life and my life about how we ought to live and and what we ought to do. I talked about it when we talked about worship. You and I were made to worship. The question in your life is not, will I worship? The question is, whom or what will I worship? Who or what will I worship? We were made to worship God. Sin will tell us that we don't have to worship him. For you, it may be that, uh, you know what, you don't have to tell the whole truth. You don't have, you can... You can kind of fudge it. It may be that you don't have to be, you know, faithfulness to your spouse, uh, you know, if it doesn't get physical, it's okay. 
You can, you can, that's, it's open to interpretation. That's sin talking. It may be, you don't have to forgive that person. You know, I mean, they don't seem like they're sorry. They said they were sorry, but they don't seem like they're sorry, so you don't have to forgive them. Jesus doesn't understand when he says forgive. He doesn't understand your situation. Sin will tell you you can protect yourself with your anger. Sin intends to get you in rebellion, on the run, underwater, and without hope. And when we choose to sin, we end up in rebellion with God, on the run, under uh, figurative water, hopefully not literal, but perhaps literal, and without hope. I mean, consider our father and mother, Adam and Eve, right? Another story that, that we sometimes kind of think of in mythical terms, but these were real people. Before they were... Before they had sinned, Adam is brought to Eve, who is, is flesh of his flesh and blown of his bone, and he sees her and starts to sing. I mean, this is, this is a marriage moment, and any married man knows, like, yes, you're the one. That's, I like this. I like you and me and us together. That's a great thing. And the word says that they were naked and unashamed. They had a perfect relationship with God, and they were in a perfect marriage. They were in a perfect marriage. But after they sinned, they ran and hid from God, and they tried to blame each other for their problems. Does that sound familiar? They found themselves in rebellion, on the run, maybe not underwater, but behind some shrubs and without hope. As Jonah was sinking into the ocean, the gracious discipline of God came in the form of a big fish. And, and if you've ever wondered to yourself, does God have a sense of humor? I think that he does. Because this is, in the best sense that I could say, ridiculous. Right? Jonah is acting ridiculous, so God is like, you know what? Let's have a ridiculous solution. You're going to get saved by a big fish. God had appointed a big fish to swallow and save Jonah. God's discipline... His saving discipline isn't just a restart button. You know, sometimes when, when you and I, we, we want God to, to discipline us or we want our, our authorities in our life to, to help us, what we're really saying is we want you to make my life better. You know, when I, I remember when I was a kid and the, the Nintendo Entertainment System came out, right, the original, there was no ergonomic, it was squares and like you hurt yourself, you, you got, you know, your thumb got a callus, it was a great time. There was, there was like a little uh, duck hunter gun, which was way before its time. So cool, even now. And you, you put your cartridges in, which you soon found out that you'd have to blow out. And then you, you did this thing where you, you, you push it in right, and then you kind of shove it down right at the end. Just that, that was, if, you're, if you know, you know. And it had the power button and the reset button. And we want God's discipline to be the reset button. Just, God, can we just start over? Let me just press this reset, get everything kind of looking nice. You know, Mario's right at the beginning. Everything's okay. I know that the first, uh, the, the first question mark that I bump and hit with my head, it's going to be a, mu- a mushroom and I'm going to get bigger. It's going to be great. But the problem is that, that God's discipline doesn't come as a reset button. We don't often choose the, dis- the discipline that God gives us. Um, I, I think that if, 
If Jonah could have chosen his discipline, I don't think he would have chosen the, the catch of the day to be the conduit for his grace. But that was the point. God wanted to bring discipline to his life. And part of that discipline was helping him understand, you don't call the shots here. In, in Hebrews, I'm sure we've all memorized this scripture because it's, it's dear to our hearts. Um, Someone said, I know, I, oh no, and I think that they're probably closer to the truth. Um, it says in Hebrews chapter 3, consider him, talking about Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And you're thinking, oh yes, Jesus, thank you so much. But he goes on and he says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Oh. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The writer of Hebrews is Jesus juking us. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? He's saying, oh, your struggle is real hard, I know. Have you, have you struggled with sin to the point of shedding blood? You're like, well, no. Well, then don't complain, he says. He says, don't complain. He goes on and he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when being reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Part of being children of God is understanding that you will receive discipline. And let me say in this moment that I understand that some of you received from, from family members, maybe from other authorities, what was characterized as discipline, but was actually abuse. And what I'm saying is not that God intends to abuse us, but he is willing and he is desirous to do whatever it takes to get you to a place where you are willing to follow him. Because the alternative will always be destructive. Jonah is, he is plummeting to his death by his own willing choice. Rather than repenting, he says, just throw me over. And so anything that comes apart from that decision is grace. So God is disciplining him, yes, but it is an expression of his love. Say it with me, God disciplines his people. If you're going through a tough spot, that may just be the love of God in your life. If you're going through a difficult season of life for which you, it is not your fault, it's very likely that it is the love of God trying to form and shape something in you. And here's what's even more radical is if, if, if you are going through a tough spot that you are the cause of. God is still allowing that, and if you're walking with him through it, there is a purpose for which he has in that for you. He will produce something in you even through the stupid decisions that you and I make, that I make. I say that with love, inviting us all to hug over our stupid mistakes. He appointed, he appointed the, the fish to swallow him, but he doesn't just do that. It says that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You know that God could have just saved him in an instant. I mean, he could have sent angels to draw him out of the water, 
We see that in Scripture. He could have split the waters, right? We could have had a Moses moment. He just falls, and it's like, you know, you see the, there's the big whale about to get you, and there's some things, but you're on dry land. You're like, oh, cool. So this is what Exodus was like. He could have done that. He could have transported Jonah like, like God did with Philip and Acts. Philip, is, he's one of the, the deacons, and, and God's like, I want you to talk to a guy over here. And he transports him. I don't know what that looks like, but he did it. But God allowed Jonah to be in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The language of three days and three nights is idiomatic, so it's entirely possible that it means just this, that, that he was in the belly of the whale to the point of death. In this time, the, th- the thought was among, among his contemporaries that it took about three days for you to get to the gates of Hades, to the gates of death. It could also be literal in the sense that it, it was three days and three nights. But the point that the author is trying to make in using this language is that God allowed him to get to the point of, of seeing death in the face, seeing the, the reality of his sin and its consequences intimately. He could have meant long enough for Jonah to be dead, but the point was clear that Jonah was approaching death. Jonah's sin had carried him so far, but now he was facing death, and the only thing that would save him was God's intervention. So while the fish also represents God's discipline, it represents God's gracious care. When you and I face discipline in our lives, it is an expression of God's loving care. When a parent who is disciplining their child out of love, not in a vindictive, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win the argument or I'm going to show you who's the boss, but a, child, a, a parent who sees a child who's, who's going in a, in a wayward way does something to discipline that child, that is an expression of love. You know, if, if my toddler son walked up, you know, to, to an, an electrical outlet and started to put his finger there, I might, I might move his finger. And if he did that again, I might move his finger. And if he did that again, I might pop his hand or spank his little bottom, which is covered in a diaper, so it's okay. <laughs> Something to communicate to this child that what you are doing is putting you on a path to death. And that is not hateful or hurtful. That is God's grace in that child's life. That is my love in that child's life. And some of you, you struggle with the difficulties that you face because you assume that if it's coming from God, it's always going to be pleasant. And I wish that was the truth. But ask anyone in this household that has walked with God longer than five years, and you will find out that, man, sometimes God allows pretty rough stuff into our life, and he uses those things. The, the, the interesting thing about being a Christian family is that you will be shaped so much more by the difficulties in this life than you will be by the, by the pleasant, nice things that you experience, by, by the, the lattes that you drink and, and the, the kind-hearted, fun times that you have with friends and family. Those are great things to be thankful for. But it's the moments of, of challenge, of difficulty, of cutting, of chiseling that God brings us into where we find all the junk that's going on in our lives and we realize, I did not realize that all that tar was in there. Again, spouses, you know that because you have, you've had the conversation where it's, it escalates, it escalates, and then you're like, oh, both of you are like, I don't know where that came from. That was ugly. And you're like, it came from inside you. 
when we go through challenges, God disciplines us so that those things might be brought to the surface, that he might bring holiness to us. Maybe you're facing the discipline of God. Maybe you've come to church with a strong sense of the sin that God wants you to repent of, and there's a heaviness. Like even right now, your hands are starting to sweat. You don't have to look to your neighbor. No one's going to point you out. But I want to encourage you that if that's you, if your heart's starting to beat a little bit faster, and you're like, please don't look at me, please don't look at me, please don't look at me. God is speaking to you and inviting you to turn to him. Don't ignore it. Repent. Do the thing that God want, has laid on your heart to do. Maybe, maybe the circumstances around your life have imploded because of your sin and your unwise choices. That difficulty is an opportunity that God has placed in front of you to draw you to himself. I'm not saying it isn't difficult. I'm not trying to take a bad thing and say, it's not that bad. But what I am saying is that there is grace in that because God is not too big for your crisis. For us, this picture of Jonah in the belly of the fish is just its a shadow of a greater prophet who was dead for three days. Jesus even refers to this reality in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus has been doing miracles and, and signs and, and, and the people around are like, we just need one more sign. We're not quite sure yet. I don't know, Jesus. You did all these cool things, but meh, I don't know. Right? Before this, he had just healed a man who had a withered hand and just poof, stopped being withered. But they still needed more signs. It says in verse 38 of chapter 12, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus, I think, kind of gets a little fed up. And he says, you know what? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And what he was saying was not, hey, an evil and you're evil and adulterous if you, if you want to know God. He's saying, you're seeking one more sign because you're more interested in being committed to the adulterous idolatry in your life than you are to listening to God who is right in front of your face. And he goes on, he says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Like Jonah, Jesus was sacrificed to appease the wrath of God. Jonah was thrown into the water, God's wrath was appeased. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. God's wrath over his people was appeased. But unlike Jonah, Jesus is not the reason for his own death. You and I are. I'll say that again. Jesus is not the reason that he goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross because of my sin, because of your sin. Jesus was in the grave three days because you and I chose to run and rebel. And Jesus was treated as one who was on the run, in rebellion, underwater, under the water of God's judgment and without hope because of you and me. But you and I have an opportunity to turn to God today. Turn to God today. I'll say it again. Turn to God today. We're going <laughs> to go through the next nine verses very quickly because the last one verse took a while. But... Jelly, uh, jelly. Uh, Jonah is now in the belly of the fish, and at some point, the timeline is this. He's thrown in the water, he's floating down, as we'll see that like moss and stuff gets, I mean, he's freaking out. This is bad. And he finally, at some point, 
decides to pray. And that's when God sends the fish. And this is the prayer that he prays. It says that Jonah then prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, and I cried, and you heard my voice. And he goes on. Now, this is, this is what, what's called a thanksgiving psalm. It's a psalm. It's a, it's a poet, poem. Prophets of the time were trained in poetry. Um, we don't know if, if this was a psalm that he'd already known and, and not just employed, or if this was something that, you know, as he's being asphyxiated, he's, he's coming up with amazing poetry. We don't know. But it has four components. It has a summary, a statement of the crisis, a statement of the divine rescue, and then a vow of praise. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the summary. He says that he's crying out, and it says in verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, right? I'm, I'm drowning, I'm in the sea, I'm under your judgment, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, the belly of Sheol was the place of the dead in the Old Testament. So I'm in the belly of Sheol, I'm about to face death, I cried out, and you heard my voice. That is the summary of our lives. We are on a, on a, a the track, on a way towards death because of our sin. And by the grace of God, we have opportunity to cry out, to repent, and he hears our voice. He calls out in his distress and God answers him. And then he goes on to describe the crisis. This is the reason that I don't go deep sea fishing. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Two things that we should see about Jonah's crisis. First, God was sovereign over the crisis. Note, note that Jonah says, you cast me into the deep. Not, not the sailors cast me into the deep, those, those rascals. He says, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Not, not nature, not the natural uh, responses of wind and, and high pressure levels and low pressure levels doing crazy things. No, God, you did this. If you want to be able to live this Christian life, you will need to be comfortable with the fact that God is sovereign over the mess in your life. And I don't just mean like he's watching from afar and like, uh, I'm going to allow this. No, he will cast us into trouble in order to produce something in us. I'm, I'm begging for you to open up your idea of Christianity beyond the sense that God saves me when I make a decision and then I live a good life and then I die and go to heaven and do whatever I want. God is, he is fitting us, as one writer says, fitting you for heaven. But that fitting is much like a sculptor. There's a lot of stuff that gets, has to get cut away. He's fitting us for heaven, and because of that, we have to recognize that our, our crises fall under the sovereignty of God. The second thing that we should see in this crisis is that it was dire. Jonah truly was in danger and nearly hopeless in this situation. He had plunged headlong into rebellion and was on the, at the brink of death. Verse 5 is particularly vivid. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The waters were coming to take my life. If you've ever been uh, underwater for longer than you wanted to, you know what this panic feels like. I remember being in college and, and somehow wrestling with a guy underwater, and it went from being fun to I'm going to physically harm this person if he doesn't let me out of the water. 
It, was, it, it become, became almost animalistic in my sense of need to not be, out of the, not be under the water. He's panicking. But the encouragement here for us is that, is that if God can rescue Jonah from this crisis, he can rescue you from yours. And we see that Jonah moves from crisis to the place of God's divine rescue. We see it hinted out in verse 4. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And he repeats that in uh, uh, verse 7. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He, he shifts his focus from his situation to rem- rem- remembering the temple, which for him was the place of the presence of God. I want to think, I want to go back to the presence of God. I fled from the presence of God, but now I'm going and I'm asking God in the, his presence to come to me. And, and this is where we see the, the repentance happening. Right, Because in chapter 1, he had run from the presence of God, and now he's running, and he's saying, I need the presence of God. As he is approaching death, he turns to prayer. And sometimes, family, all you have is prayer. There's nothing else he can do. He doesn't have scuba gear. He doesn't have flippers. He doesn't have gills. All he can do is pray. And yet, that's all he needs to do. Family, sometimes all you can do is pray. You can't fix the situation. Right? Have you been in a situation where option was, was bad, option two was bad, option three was bad, and that was it? And you're like, which limb do I want to lop off? Sometimes all you can do is pray. You can't stop the consequences from coming. You can't fix the situation. You can't do anything, but you can pray. If you're in that situation now, turn to God in prayer. And as Jonah realizes that God's salvation has come, he He turns from prayer to praise. It goes on and it says, Those who, verse 8, those who pay regard in vain to vain idols forsake their hope in the steadfast love. Sorry, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols, those who worship other gods, forsake their hope of steadfast love. Because steadfast love, family, doesn't come from your idols. Steadfast love will never come from your job. Steadfast love will never come from that, that person in your life. They may love you, but they will not do it f- infinitely and without condition forever. Because we're humans. We can't. Steadfast love will not come from entertainment. Steadfast love will not come from that thing that is numbing you of your pain. He says, those who pay, pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Perhaps you're feeling hopeless because you're worshiping the wrong God. He says this, um, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And I want you to hear this. Those who, I'm sorry, I will, with the, th- with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that ver- before? Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered what? Sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In a roundabout way, Jonah finds himself knocked off his high horse of, self, of self-righteousness. And, and really in the same place as these pagan sailors. Where his only recourse is to, to submit to God. To fear God. Family, there, there are no pedestals at the foot of the cross. When we come to God, we come to him on our knees. In Proverbs 3.34, in James 4.6, and in 1 Peter 5.5, God tells us that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
He doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times, and he says it in other ways in other places. God brought Jonah to the place where he would be willing to lay down his pride and submit to the will of God. And God will do the same to us. He opposes opposes us in our pride, but he will give grace to us if we humble ourselves before him. And and humility isn't self-denigration. It's not, oh, I'm a bad person, woe is me, I can never do anything good, I don't have any skills or talents, That's not, that's not pride. Pride, or sorry, that's not, that's not humility. It may be pride. Um, uh, humility is understanding who you are and who you are not. And let me be the first to tell you and confess to myself and remind myself, I am not God. And the news to you, maybe good, maybe bad, is that you are not God. You're like, no, I, I know that, but you don't, right? In America, it's like, well, I'm an individual. I get to make my choices. I have the freedoms I want. I am my own God. Like we, we may not say that. We may not get a shirt that says, hey, I'm God. But we live our lives like, hey, I'm God. You can't tell me how to do what I want to do. You can't tell me who I can marry. You can't tell me what rules I have about uh, what I engage in in marriage and out of marriage. You can't tell me what I watch or don't watch. I am God. Family, sometimes the reason that you're in the situation you're in is because you are coming up to God and saying, God, I want to worship you. I want to worship me. And we say it with our words, I want to worship you, but underneath, I want to worship me. So, we're not God. We're creatures. We submit to God. We're going to land this plane. Once God's lesson is over, Jonah is, he is sufficiently humbled it says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Like, it's just very, job's done. All right, Bill, go ahead. What? <laughs> like it's not magical. It's not pretty. It's not, like, eloquent. I appreciate this in Scripture. Can I just say, like, it's funny. Like, the sixth grade boy in me said, ha, ha, he said vomit. He vomits him up on the Scripture. Or not in the Scriptures. Anyways, keep moving. All right. Um, once God had done what he wanted to with Jonah, he ended the ordeal. And the end, the end came not a moment sooner. And for Jesus, he was in the grave for three days, and he rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death. And because of God's grace, Jonah lives, or he lived, and he lives in heaven now. And because of God's grace, Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we can live. I want to I close with this story. Um, you're likely familiar with the song Amazing Grace. I'm going to sing it now. No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. Um, but I don't know how familiar you are with the author, John Newton. Um, John Newton was born in, in 1725, at the age, and at the age of 11, he left school to become a merchant marine, like many 11-year-olds. Um, he later served in the British Navy, uh, and then in 1745... He shifted from the Navy to become a trader of enslaved peoples from West Africa. He continued in this terrible profession even through his conversion. So he gets saved in 1748, we think, and he continues to be a slave trader till 1754. Then from the mid-1750s through his death, he served as a minister. He he ends up going into the Anglican Church and serving there. And becomes a supporter of the anti-slavery movement. He works with uh, William Wilberforce and others. And really is one of the, the 
catalysts for slavery ending in England. And as, as a minister, he wrote hymns of which Amazing Grace is one. But I want you to listen to the lyrics of this sinner, slave trader turned abolitionist. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you hear the humility in that? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Think about Jonah when you hear this verse. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Twas grace, God's gracious discipline, that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear when the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope, or sorry, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. The, the psalmist says it this way, my heart and my flesh may fail me, you, you could put in other, my friends, my family, my job, my, my, my plans, my, my mind, my, my skill sets, it could all fail me. But God, you are my portion. And then he says this, when we've been there in heaven 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. God had touched this man and, and repentance had been wrought in his life. And some of you, you're, you're timid at embracing God's discipline and turning because you're like, it's going to be painful. Family, it may be painful, but it is much better than the alternative. It is much better than the alternative. If God is touching your heart and telling you to repent, turn to God today. Turn to God right now. The way out may be through. The way out may be through. Perhaps you find yourself in an ordeal. Your sin has created a situation that you have no control over. It has just gone haywire. Turn to God today. Trust in God today. It may be that the only way out is through. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you help us? God, I thank you that you are good and you are loving, but so many of us come to you having a poor idea of what loving discipline looks like. So many of us have been hurt. So many of us have seen your authority misrepresented. And God, for those individuals who wince at the idea of discipline, would you, would you show them your you're just your tender-hearted care. And for those who are running, who are in rebellion, on the run, underwater, without hope, would you help them to see that there's hope in Jesus Christ? That they would stop in their tracks, stop running from God, and run to God. God, we thank you that like Jonah, Jesus was in the grave three days, but he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death in order that we might have life, that we might have eternal life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. 
was blind, but now I see. Let that be our testimony, God. If you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want to do that today, would you raise your hand? There's nothing magical in raising your hand. It's just an expression of what God's doing. And for some of you, I want to challenge you because you know that you need to repent. And I'm not going to ask you what you're trying to repent of. I'm not going to point you out, but would you raise your hand as a way of expressing to God your willingness to stand out? Great. Once that's hands up, just put it back down. But there's, there's something about putting your body where your mind is, putting where your money where your mouth is. I'm going to raise my hand knowing that, that people might see that, hey, there's junk in my life that I need to repent of. Can I tell you that there's junk in everyone's life? God, we thank you for your, your goodness. The word says, family, to those of you who are repenting, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And standing in here, I say you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. If you have repented and you're turning to Jesus, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. God, would you minister that forgiveness? Would you minister that freedom? And would you help us to embrace your loving discipline? And would you draw near to us in our brokenness? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Love you, family.